In his book, Jesus, the Great Philosopher, Jonathan Pennington paints a vivid portrait, at least from my childhood. He references the the old First Baptist or First Methodist Church with the banners hanging from the rafters that have the titles of Jesus on them. You may remember these, right? They say Prince of Peace or Wonderful Counselor or King of Kings. But one that you wouldn't typically see hanging would be Great Philosopher or Wise Teacher. That's a banner that I just don't recall from my childhood. We have a a bit of an aversion, I think, to to the idea of Jesus as a good teacher because so many around us in our day would say, well, yeah, Jesus is a good teacher, he's just not God. And so in a converse of that, we kind of shirk at that idea of Jesus as a a wise teacher um, or a good philosopher. And yet it's just as true or just as easy, isn't it, to say, yeah, Jesus is God, but he's not all that smart when it comes to everyday life. We wouldn't put it that way because that sounds sacrilegious. But we say, you know, Jesus is you know, a nice man, a good person for morals, but when it comes to the nitty-gritty of life, he's a little bit out there, right? And so I've got my uh, religious sphere with morals and character, and then I've got my wisdom sphere, right, with things like work and money and sex and friendships. This, these are things that are in this sphere that Jesus doesn't probably have a lot to say to. Religion is great, isn't it, for morals and for crises, but this morning you say, in at least your heart, if not your mouth, I live in the real world, right? I've got to make real decisions. And this is where Proverbs speaks directly into Because while religion, quote-unquote, is great for those morals and crises, wisdom steps into the places of life in which roles will no longer do. It's into this space of the nitty-gritty that we enter into as we open the book of Proverbs and as we begin this series for the next few weeks on the book of Proverbs. This is why we're structuring the series the way that we are, taking the collections of Proverbs on certain topics and addressing these topics, things like, again, money and work and relationships, and seeing what Proverbs, and thus the Scriptures, have to say regarding these, uh, these areas of our lives. But while we might come to Proverbs expecting some Israelite, Dear Abby-type advice, Proverbs goes deeper than that, and it goes wider than that. Proverbs has a different way of presenting wisdom to us. And so the first thing I want to look at this morning is the definition of wisdom, according to Proverbs 1. The definition of wisdom. The first thing that we see right uh, at the beginning in the first two verses where we read the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for learning wisdom and discipline, for understanding insightful Sayings. This word wisdom in verse 2, it's the Hebrew word chokmah. You don't need to remember that. You simply need to know that across the Old Testament, this word refers not just to knowledge or being smart. It refers to applied skill or a competence or even a, a craftsmanship. You see this in Exodus 35 where it's talking about the artist who would adorn the tabernacles. And it says he uses his wisdom in artistry to do that. You see it in Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 9, where this word chokmah, this word wisdom, is used to refer to the craftsmanship of a goldsmith, using the knowledge that he has, but applying it in a way to craft something out of gold. It's even used in Psalm 107 to refer to the ability of sailors at sea, the knowledge that they have applied in skill to sail a ship across 
the sea. This kind of wisdom does require knowledge, but it goes beyond mere knowledge, right? So the difference in knowledge and wisdom is the difference in a ref and an NFL wide receiver, right? The referee might have more knowledge, might have more knowledge of the game than an NFL wide receiver. But one thing he certainly does not have, no offense to referees, is the skill, right? He does not have more skill than a wide receiver in the NFL does. So while he might have more stuff in here, he certainly can't apply it to the game of football like an NFL wide receiver does. At least in a biblical sense, the wide receiver has more wisdom because he's able to take what he knows about the game and flesh it out in real life. So wisdom encompasses all of these concepts that you heard Moises read just a moment ago. It encompasses discipline, understanding, insight, righteousness, shrewdness, and discretion. So wisdom is the discipline to set aside money for your future. It's the shrewdness to respond well when your friend makes a racist joke. It's the discretion to see through the drum of cable news, social media, and advertising's efforts to manipulate and to tempt you. Wisdom understands how life really works. And through the grace of wisdom, Jesus beautifies our daily lives. He makes our lives beautiful. He helps us to flourish. I love the way Proverbs chapter 4, verse 9 describes wisdom. It says, wisdom is a crown of beauty, adorning the head of someone. It's a crown to wear. It's something that people notice that brings out the natural beauty that's already there. Paul in Colossians 4, 5 commands us to walk in wisdom toward outsiders. That is, may they see the beauty of your life, the practical skill of living according to God's way and aligning your life according to his way, and may they be captivated by the way that you walk wisely in the world. May outsiders see your wisdom. So if wisdom is not mere knowledge but a skill, it's also not a door but a path. Wisdom is not a door but a path. Let me explain what I mean. I I pull this from, it's throughout Proverbs, but at least one example is in chapter 4, verse 11. Solomon says, I am teaching you the way of wisdom. I am guiding you on straight paths. The way of wisdom, straight paths. Normally we think of wisdom as as a door. And what I mean by that is we think of decisions that come to us, right? And we have door A, door B, and door C. And wisdom is deciding which door to walk through, right? And there's a right answer and a wrong answer. And so if you walk through door A, you're in God's will, right? If you walk through door B, you're out of God's will, and you're off the timeline, right? And so you've messed up your whole life because of this one decision that you made. You walked through the wrong door, and therefore, you are unwise. Now, there are certainly decisions, right, that affect our lives and have momentous impact for the rest of our lives. But in Proverbs, we we find that God isn't looking to give us, like, the secret eight-ball answer, to every decision that we make. That's not what wisdom is, right? That's a, that's a rule. Instead, God is seeking to help us to walk on the path of wisdom. He's giving us the skills necessary to make that decision when those doors come, to make the wisest and the most godly decision in those areas of gray that permeate our lives. He says, follow this path, learn these skills, and make decisions in light of that path or skill. So Kevin DeYoung has a, has a great little book on this concept called Just Do Something. And in it, he asks this question. And I think it's a, it's a helpful two questions to help us see the difference between a path and a door. The first question he asks is, does God, so it's, it's an example of wisdom in choosing a partner for marriage, right? 
Does God know who you're going to marry? Does he know the one person who you will marry? I see some nods. Of course he does, right? In his providence, in his sovereignty, not only does he know, but he's selected in many ways the person that you're going to marry. But the second question is more practical for us. Is he expecting you to go and find that person? Is God's expectation for, as a young single person, is his expectation for you to discover the person who he's chosen for you to marry? Well, the answer to that is at least a qualified no, right? That's not our task, is to intuit from whatever it is, the sticks that we throw on the ground or our gut feeling in the morning or randomly creeping in public places and throwing darts and hoping we hit the right person, right? That's not our task. And also that's a bad method of both picking and securing a partner, but that's another day. Um, What he does give us, right, is words of wisdom to guide that decision. So in Paul's letters, he exhorts us, if you are a believer, do not marry an unbeliever. Okay, so that rules out a part of the pool, right? It's a good qualifier. He, we see in Song of Solomon that it is helpful if you are attracted physically, emotionally, and spiritually to your marriage partner, to your spouse. Okay, well, people I'm attracted to in that way, that rules out another segment of the pool, right? Ephesians 5, is this a person you're willing to lay down your life and preferences for in order to magnify God's goodness and our relationship to Christ through your marriage? All right, there are people who I find attractive and who are believers who I'm not willing to lay down my preferences and my life for. So that, again, takes out a same with the whole. So now I've got wise principles. Now I might find three, four, five people right, who meet those qualifications as a single man. I've already found my one, but I'm, I'm speaking for you, right? <laughs> you might find, as a single person, those four or five people who meet those qualifications, right? All right, well, Kevin DeYoung makes a great point, and frankly, Proverbs makes a great point. Pick one. Right? You've walked according to wisdom to make that decision. Now, go about the business of just doing something. You're on the path. You're not going to stray from the path walking outside of God's given wisdom for your life. This is true not just of marriage partners, right? It's true of decisions like, should I retire? Well, the first question is, are you making this decision out of laziness, out of desire not to work? Or are you making this decision to spend more time with family or to find faithfulness in another area of your life? If, if you're saying, well, I just, I'm tired of working and I just want to sit back and eat Cheetos for the next 40 years, that's, that's probably a bad indicator, right? That's a decision that maybe that's not the wisest course. But if there are godly principles at work, you could, you could probably do either one of those things and not sin, right? You could probably retire or keep working, most likely, and not be in sin. The question is not which one is the right decision, which one is the not sinful decision. The question is which one is the wise decision, Which one do the scriptures give me the greatest indicator of what will give me faithfulness and what will beautify my life for the sake of the kingdom of Christ? That's what wisdom looks like. So it's important to remember that wisdom is about principles and not promises. right? Principles, not promises. So that famous verse, train up a child in the way he should go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. That is a beautiful principle. And there's a nugget of truth. There's an encouragement in there to train up our children in godliness. And yet, if we see in a brother or sister a child that has come up and rejected the faith, that's not necessarily right, an indicator that they weren't raised up in the way they should go. Right? Because that's a principle. That's a, generally speaking, this is how life works. Right? It's not a promise that if then. Same is true of uh, Proverbs 10. Proverbs 10 verse 4. Lazy hands make for poverty. 
but diligent hands bring wealth. Well, this is the way that life works generally, right? If you are lazy, it is more likely right, that you are not going to be able to earn enough income to bring success financially. If you are diligent, it is more likely that as you work hard, those fruits will be born and reaped. And yet, all of us know people, right, who are diligent workers who are not rich. Likewise, all of us know people who are rich who are not all that diligent workers either, right? Because life is messy. So that's a principle, but it's not a, it's not a promise, right? It's a just description of the way that life works, and therefore an exhortation to be diligent, an exhortation to train up a child, because this is how, God, how life works God's way. This is the skill that God is giving us. And this is also, therein lies the great challenge of wisdom, too. So because they are principles and not promises, this leads us to the challenge of wisdom, which is that we are all wise in our own eyes. We are all wise in our own eyes. And if you're not as familiar with the Old Testament, this is not a good thing. To be wise in your own eyes is not a good thing. You read the book of Judges, it starts out, Israel was, they were all wise in their own eyes. And then three chapters later, you get a guy getting stabbed on the toilet, right? It does not go well if you're wise in your own eyes. And so if you don't want to get stabbed on the toilet, listen to the rest of the sermon. That's the, that's the takeaway here. Um, but you say this morning, right? Okay, that's not me, right? I'm not wise in my own eyes. I'm not getting stabbed on any toilets anytime soon. But the reality is, brothers and sisters, that we, are all, we all lean this way, right? We all see ourselves as wise. Romans 1 talks about this, right? Sin has clouded our minds so that we naturally make selfish decisions. We naturally see ourselves as exalted. If you don't believe me, have you ever done the little supposedly helpful method of when you've got a hard decision to make, make a pros and cons list? You ever done this? Maybe you're more holy than me. What I end up doing, whatever it, whichever one I want to do, I sit down and make a ton of pros and work really hard for like three hours coming up with all the pros. And then whichever one I don't want to do, I sit down for like three minutes and come up with three cons. I'm like, oh, well, that's all I can think of. Well, I guess, I guess it's that one, right? I guess I'm going with a pro thing that I already wanted to do. Right? We, we manipulate situations in order to get what we want. See this in pastoral counseling all the time, right? You're speaking to someone who's been caught in adultery. And it's so rare for someone to say, yeah, I was sinful and selfish. What do people say? You don't understand. I found my soulmate. Right? You don't understand the, the feeling, the passion that's here. Oh, okay, I understand it fine. You're, it's, it's adultery, right? The same true with someone in, in greed, right? Caught up in greed and materialism. Well, I, I just want to provide for my family. I want to give my family blessings and good things. I want to be generous. I want to be able to give things away. I mean, maybe. But is it also possible that we're, we're being wise in our own eyes and reflecting the mirror that we want to see? Maybe it's someone who is lazy and you say, look, I'm just practicing some self-care six days a week, right? <laughs> we, can, we can manipulate things to sound really good for ourselves. And then we judge others based on the other expectation, right? So the, question, the diagnostic question that Proverbs is going to continually bring us back to, you hear this even in receiving prudent instruction, how do you respond to correction? How do you respond to counsel or teaching? It doesn't mean you change your mind every time somebody says something new, right? It doesn't mean you're a flip-flopper. But are there even people in your life who have the ability to do that? Are there people in your life who can give you counsel that is not what you want to hear, that is on the side of your cons list, and you would listen and receive that, and that might affect your decision? 
When's the last time a friend, or even better, the scriptures, changed your mind about something? Didn't just affirm what you already thought, but made you turn from one decision to another? Are you teachable? You see, friends, the only way onto the path of wisdom is through the threshold of humility. The only way to get onto the path of wisdom is to walk through the threshold of humility. You see this right there in Proverbs, right? Verse 3, receiving prudent instruction. James picks up on this in his letter in chapter 1. He says, rid yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. Humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Receive the implanted word. Okay, so all sources of information are not created equal. Right? You shouldn't receive every word that you get. I couldn't help, I mean, last year it was like all of my friends from high school that slept through biology were all of a sudden experts on like aerosol transmissions and vaccines. And it was like, you know, you're reading these threads. I, I've just sanctified enough not to comment on Facebook threads. I've, I've learned that much in my life. But I'm reading these and it's like, they're like, well, do your own research. And then they're posting videos from like, science is cool with a K2000. You know? And I'm like, well, if science is cool with a K2000 says it, clearly. Okay, so not all sources of information are created equal. But one thing we see in this passage is you cannot go wrong receiving the implanted word. All kinds of different sources of instruction can take us all different ways on all different paths that are not wise. And yet, if we bring them back to the implanted word, we will find the wisdom that will give us a flourishing and godly life. We will begin to live life skillfully. We will move away from foolishness onto the path that God has given us. The way to wisdom is not looking down on others, but looking up to our Father. The way to be wise is not to be condescending, right? Not to look down on everyone else's point of view, but to look up, to receive the implanted word that our Father has given us, and to be transformed by it, to be humbled under his hand. We've got to set aside the illusion that we're competent and everything's okay. Instead, we've got to come to Jesus with open hands, ready to receive his wisdom, understanding that that might take us places we weren't planning on already going. But we come ready to receive Jesus is our wise teacher. He is our wise king. And in some very good news to the young people in the room, being inexperienced, according to Proverbs, does not mean you are foolish. Do you hear it in verse 4? For teaching shrewdness to the inexperienced, knowledge and discretion to a young man. You hear that? Proverbs has different categories for foolish and inexperienced, right? Foolish people despise instruction. Inexperienced people just haven't gotten it yet. So to those of us here who you're like, look, I don't have a lot of experience. I'm not really. You are not a fool, according to Proverbs. As a matter of fact, you are Proverbs' intended audience. You see that in verse 8. Listen, my son, to your father's instruction. These are Solomon's words to his son. And by implication, they're taken then to instruct right, people who are living in the temple. Young temple courtiers, right? That's the idea. This is a book of instruction primarily to young people to keep them from making the mistakes that are so prone in, in people my age and older and maybe younger. Um, but we've got, what, we've got that reminder. But we've also got in verse 5, let a wise person listen and increase learning. Let a discerning person obtain guidance. 
So if inexperience doesn't mean you're a fool, then experience doesn't necessarily mean you're wise either, right? <coughs> Simply having experience in life doesn't necessarily mean you've attained wisdom. As a matter of fact, it probably doesn't, right? In other words, we all have something to learn in this room. The wisest among us still need prudent instruction. They need to increase in learning. We need to continually obtain guidance. In other words, Proverbs has a word for each of us, if we would heed it and listen. As a side note, this, this need for receiving is why we encourage you to join a life group and to seek out intergenerational friendships and relationships because we all need to receive wisdom and what little wisdom we have, we need to be generous and give it. I'll never forget uh, sitting in this room over here before we remodeled the building in our parenting class a couple of years ago. Uh, Rodney Simes was teaching and someone asked a, a great question, which was, so what do you do with first-time obedience? How do you get your kids there, Right? How do you get your kids to obey on the first time? And as a young dad, I like lean forward for the answer to this one, right? Ask my kids to get their shoes on, and then 10 minutes later, ask my kids to get their shoes on. <laughs> Five minutes later, I'm still asking my kids, he's like, okay, how do, how do I make them get their shoes on, Mr. Rodney? Please tell me. And man, he gave such a, a wise answer. He said, you know, that's, that's important. And if you guys don't know Rodney, he's got five kids, right? And they're like 20-something and six kids say, yeah. Yeah, I won't tell you which one I forgot. Um, <laughs> he's got six kids. And uh, they range from, right, 20s to like, 7 or 8. How old is Samuel? Somewhere around there. 8, 9, 10. Yeah, 9. Thank you. 8. I can't count. Anyway, we're going to move on. Um, I'm going to finish my story now. So what he says there, right, is this. He says, look, for, obedience is important. First time, that's a good skill. Um, it's helpful to remind your kids of that. But when they turn, by the time they're 18, first-time obedience doesn't really matter anymore. Right? Them obeying you on the first time you ask them to do something isn't a skill that's going to transcend into adulthood. He said, you know, and also I kind of found out about myself that I tend to make that about me, and it becomes something where they're not obeying me on the first time, which reflects more about my heart than, than theirs. He said, instead, I've started trying to teach them to be good listeners. And that's what I want to go to is, we need to be a good listener. We need to be attentive to what people are asking us to do. That's a skill that they're going to need, to be a good listener. So I want to instruct them in that, and then I want to teach myself patience. And I want to use that as an opportunity to teach myself patience, that not, the world doesn't revolve around me and my needs. And my kids might have needs that I'm not aware of. And man, I was like, right? That was totally changed categories. That was, that's advice that you don't get, right? No offense, guys, but from my other 20-something and 30-something toddler dads, right? We're all like, oh, I want to get those kids. Right? You're, you're, you're not past that stage yet, and so you don't have the wisdom that comes from reflection on it. And yet, I wouldn't have heard that if I wasn't there willing to receive the wisdom that Rodney was offering to that class. We have to be present and ready to hear it. Willing to admit that, you know what, and it comes to, I don't have this whole parenting thing all that figured out. I'm kind of bad at it most of the time. But by God's grace, I want more wisdom. And this is absolutely crucial because the stakes of wisdom are so high. The stakes of wisdom are so much higher than we typically think they are. You see, if wisdom isn't just a series of doors to walk through or a couple of Dear Abby questions to answer and read the replies... If it really is a path 
a way of life, if it's the skill of living a godly and therefore beautiful and flourishing life, the stakes of wisdom are much higher than being smarter, getting a better job, or having a better marriage. Humility that leads to wisdom isn't just an added benefit of our lives. It is the difference between a life that flourishes and a life that languishes. Humility and therefore wisdom becomes the difference, the hinge between a life that flourishes and a life that languishes. This life begins now and it sets our trajectory into eternity. Are we humble? Will we be wise? You see, the Proverbs we find in this book each peel back a new layer of what Jesus meant when he told his disciples that he is the way, the truth, and the life. So many times we hear that word way and we think way to heaven, and he certainly is that. He is not less than that. But I'm more and more convinced that what, he's, what John's wanting us to hear there and what Jesus meant there is so much more than just the get-out-of-hell-free card, the way to heaven. Jesus is asking us to get on the way, to get on the path. That will change everything about our lives. It will change the way we work. It will change the way we have friends. It will change everything, all of that nitty-gritty stuff that we don't expect Jesus to change. Jesus will begin to pull us back onto the path, to give us the skill to apply godliness and flourishing and blessedness to those areas of our lives. So if Jesus is the living embodiment of wisdom from God, then foolish choices have much higher stakes than just divorce proceedings or just losing your job. If Proverbs and Jesus are right, that all these are tied back to wisdom, you can't vacuum seal right a bad marriage or vacuum seal laziness and it not affect other areas of your life, your friendships. You can't vacuum seal these things off or quarantine them off so that your broken relationship with your parents does not affect your quiet time. If walking in wisdom is a path that we're on, all of these things are connected, which means you need a bigger solution than fix my marriage or stop being lazy. You see, we come to Proverbs asking those questions, right? How can Proverbs help me be a better husband? How can Proverbs help me not be lazy? Proverbs addresses those questions, but it addresses those questions in light of bigger questions, which is why verse 7 is so crucial. Verse 7, if you could distill the whole book of Proverbs into one verse, it would be verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. A foolish approach to God will set everything off kilter. But wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. That word fear is an interesting word, isn't it? We hear that word and some of us need to be reminded that fear here, right, isn't being terrified and shaking in our boots in the face of God. Some of us need to be reminded that an encounter with the living God is not some casual, hi there, how you do, an experience. That word fear is kind of carrying both of those weights. Do you remember the little kid's book, Wind in the Willows? You got Rat and Mole, and they're on their way to find Baby Otter. <coughs> and when they get to finally find him, they encounter Pan, which is the God figure in the book. And the description of what happens to Rat and Mole when they encounter God in this book, I think summarizes or captures this idea of fear really well. Suddenly Mole felt a great awe upon him, an awe that turned his muscles to water. 
bowed his head, and rooted his feet to the ground. It was no panic terror. Indeed, he felt wonderfully at peace and happy. Rat, he found breath to whisper, shaking. Are you afraid? Afraid, murmured Rat, his eyes shining with unutterable love. Afraid of him? No, never, never. And yet, and yet, O oh mole, I am afraid. The two animals, crouching to the earth, bowed their heads and worshipped. Rat and mole there capture what's happening in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 2 and 3 very well. Isaiah talks about this figure, this man. He says, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And how will he experience this fear of the Lord? His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. You see, wisdom is not ultimately found in principles, but in a person. A person who shows us what it is like to fear the Lord rightly. Not only to fear Him and quake in our boots, but to delight in it, to find our joy and satisfaction in our fear of the Lord. Jesus delights in the fear of the Lord and lives a wise life empowered by God's Spirit. He is the one of whom Isaiah references In other words, the son of King Solomon has come. He is the only wise king. He brings good news for the foolish by taking our foolishness with him to the cross and giving us his wisdom in return. This is our philosopher king, and his name is Jesus. This is why I love his parables. You hear the word parables in verse 6 of Proverbs. Jesus speaks in parables and Proverbs and he says outright, some, of, some people will understand them and some people won't. And that's why I speak in them. You're like, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But then you read the Gospels and you see who does understand them. And it's the humble, the broken, those who have, whose foolishness has led them down paths they did not want to go and who are now reaping all of the consequences of so many foolish decisions compounded on one another. So you've got Mary Magdalene who's walked a life of foolishness and is now oppressed as the victim of demonic oppression, likely as the result of so many foolish decisions coming before that. You've got Zacchaeus, the tax collector, who in his greed and self-interest has made foolish decision after foolish decision and has alienated himself from the community in such a way that he has to climb a tree to even see Jesus. And these are the ones who hear Jesus' wisdom, who hear his proverbs and parables and understand the kingdom because humility is a threshold and they are ready to walk through it. My friend, is that you this morning? Are you looking back and seeing foolish decision after foolish decision and now you're reaping all of these consequences? And if you're honest with yourself, some of them are your fault, some of them aren't. But that's the path you're on. The good news for you this morning is that you are exactly the person who is a prime candidate to hear Jesus' wisdom, to have your life transformed. He can take you from one path and put you on the way because he is the way. He takes messy, foolish lives and makes them wise and beautiful and flourishing. As we look forward to the coming weeks, we need to remember that Proverbs is not a mere self-help manual. It is, as Ray Ortland says, the counsel for the perplexed, the strength for the defeated, the warning to the proud, and the mercy to the broken. We need Jesus.
who brings good news for the inept through the wisdom of another. Fear of the Lord is the beginning and the continuation and the end of wisdom. Would you take hold of wisdom today? We don't have banners in our worship center, and that's probably for the best. But in the sanctuary of your heart, is there a banner that says Jesus, wise philosopher? Perhaps you've called him Lord before, you've called him Savior before, but this idea of him giving you the wisdom needed to live life, of him entering into those spaces of the nitty-gritty that you tended to quarantine off as your own, and now it's time to repent and make him your teacher. Maybe you haven't begun to follow Jesus, and we'd love to pray with you toward that end. We'll have elders in the back while we sing in just a moment. If you need prayer, we would love to pray with you. Maybe you are making a decision in the coming weeks and you need God's wisdom. You need his guidance. You need to make sure you're equipped with the tools to stay on the right path. We would love to pray with you toward that end as well. Wherever you are, may we see Jesus as our wise king. Come to him with open hands and receive the wisdom that he has to offer. That is to receive Jesus himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do want Jesus. Lord, you have shown us wisdom as Jesus became to us wisdom from God. Lord, we so often have made foolish decisions, Lord, in our sin and our brokenness. We seek all the paths that we think will give us wisdom, will put us on the right path. And as we continue to try to build and build, we end up just like the folks at the Tower of Babel. We end up scattered and confused. Lord, for those here who realize in this moment that they are on the wrong path, that the, the way they are going, the trajectory that they've set is leading to um, foolishness, is leading to brokenness, leading to more sin. Father, I pray that the hope of Christ redeeming the lives of foolish sinners like me and like the rest of us in this room will encourage them to seek help and to seek wisdom. Lord, I pray that you will give us beautiful lives as your people, that uh, the world around us would see us and that we would be characterized by the way that we live in light of Jesus' life. Lord, may that shine out to the world. May we live in wisdom before outsiders. May they see our good works and glorify our Father who's in heaven. As we worship now, we pray that Jesus would shine. It's in his name we pray. Amen.